Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Welcome to episode 82 of the GeoTrek podcast. If you're new to the podcast, we explore the world telling stories related to extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. If you're a regular listener on the podcast, you're used to us reporting from inside hurricanes, on tornado chases, or even in blizzard conditions. We've also produced several podcasts that looked at wildfires in the spring of 2022. Check out GeoTrek podcast episodes 23 and number 25. This week on the podcast, we go back to the topic of fires in an episode titled Hot Dates in Minnesota, Stories and Insights from a Firefighting Couple. Our guests for this episode are a married couple, Gary Ringate and Kelly Murphy Ringate, from the Excelsior Fire District located just west of Minneapolis-St. Paul in Minnesota. Kelly is still the active fire marshal, and Gary is the retired fire chief right there in Excelsior, Minnesota. Uh, Gary and Kelly have a passion for education, so you're really going to feel more familiar with the hazard of fire after listening to this episode. If you tune into GeoTrack to hear coverage of storms and extreme weather, and fire for you is a hazard that doesn't sound so exciting, hang on for a second and hear me out on this one. While specific hazards like hurricanes and earthquakes have a distinct geography, Keep in mind that fires can occur everywhere and are documented all throughout human history. So this podcast is definitely relevant for everyone listening. Also keep in mind that other natural disasters often relate to present or past fires. For example, the 1755 Lisbon-Portugal earthquake, one of the highest impact disasters of the 18th century, was made so much worse because it struck on All Saints Day when numerous religious and memorial candles were lit, spreading a catastrophic fire throughout the region. So there was an earthquake, a tsunami, but the fire did a lot of damage as well. So we see a lot of fires come out of these previous historic disasters. Keep in mind, too, Galveston's 1900 storm, the deadliest disaster in U.S. history, was made so much worse because of flying slate shingles that were propelled by the wind, killing people instantly on contact. Galveston had so many slate shingle roofs because they were mandated to reduce fire risk after several huge fires impacted the cities in the late 1800s. So, We see this hazard of fire everywhere in history, and it's an important hazard to become more familiar with. Although fire threatens every family, Gary and Kelly share some practical steps you can take to increase your fire safety and reduce potential property loss. We also touch on wildfires, fighting fires in extreme cold, and forensic fire science that does the detective work after a blaze to determine the most likely cause of the fire. Well, without further introduction, let's jump into this podcast episode with Gary and Kelly. We recorded it live at the historic home they rent in Galveston, Texas. Hey, GeoTrekkers, this is an exciting episode of the GeoTrek podcast where we're going to talk about all the things you've ever wanted to know about fires. We're going to have a focus on Minnesota, but we're going to go well beyond that as well. Gary and Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on board. Thank you for having us or having me here to talk about this. Yes, um, great to sit down with you, Hal. Well, this is so exciting. We became friends and have been spending time here in Texas, but I know you're both from Minnesota and actually have an extensive background fighting fires, and that's how um, even y'all met each other. wanted to start by talking about your background. I mean, how did you get interested and in, in involved with fighting fires? Is this something that was in your family? I mean, what, what led to uh, your interest and, and involvement in fighting fires? 
Well, my grandfather was a volunteer firefighter up in Minnesota, but that had little to nothing to do with my involvement with it. I had many friends on the fire department, and through some acts of fate, I was asked to join the fire department rather pleasantly by a police officer to avoid going to jail. And there you are. All these years later, you're, you're sharing the wisdom with the world. Kelly, what about you? How did you get involved in fighting fires? Well, my great-grandfather, Stephen Aller, was on Shakopee Fire Department, but I got involved because at the time I was married to another gentleman, and we lived across the street from a firefighter, and he came down and handed the application to my now ex-husband, and that sat on our desk for a year, year and a half, and then I'm like, hey, why can't I be a firefighter? And I was already interested on that medical level because I was going to school in a field similar And um, the only thing that I was apprehensive about is I hate fire because I grew up with my sister starting fires. So I hated fire. So I was a little afraid to go into it. But that's how I ended up on a New Year's resolution. I said, I'm going to join and February joined. And here you are all these years later with all this experience. Um, Kelly, I want to go back to you. When I met Gary, he talked about when y'all got to know each other, you went on some really hot dates. I thought he meant romantic, but it might be that you were fighting fires together. So y'all met actually through the department, right? Yes, we met through the department. Um, There was a group of us that hung out, um, five to seven of us that were just that core group. We all kind of got on together and we just hung out and Gary and I became very good friends along with a lot, a lot of the other fire department um, firefighters that we still are very close to and keep in touch with. I'm close with a lot of my friends here on Beach Patrol doing emergency response and life-saving, and it's amazing just how tight those relationships get on, on these teams where you're training together, you're helping save lives together, and, and working a lot together. Yeah, you have to trust each other on a certain level, so you have that trust that um, when you go into a fire, you always go in two people. You have the person on the attack line or the nozzle fighting the fire, and then you got your backup person that's actually helping you manage the hose line and watching literally your back. So you have that level of trust. So you develop those long-lasting friendships. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're going through a lot together, and like you said, you're, you're trusting each other. Gary, let's talk about training. So if someone wants to become a firefighter, they're not just uh, given a jacket and, and told, here, go after that fire. There's extensive training. What does that look like for a new firefighter? Um, it all is going to depend on your department and what kind of their SOPs are. But typically, a uh, minimum of like a firefighter one course, which can be up to nine months long. Um, it's a college-level course. Um, firefighter two and yeah firefighter one and and two um you're gonna have to have some kind of a hazmat operational and then like i say depending on what your department does for medical you you know first responder slash emt which again can be a year-long course depending on where you go and what you take so it is quite extensive um most departments literally that first year to two years that you're on you might not attend a lot of calls. You might just be doing all your training because that's what you're going to be focused on. Is there a sense where you may have a window of time where you're like shadowing or maybe going along when a, another team is fighting, but you're not actually fighting? Or is that does that not really happen? That actually depends on the fire department. So some fire departments, you don't get on that truck for your other departments like the Excelsior Fire District. You're on that truck. Now, we have ways of identifying our probationary firefighters because we put them in blue helmets so everybody knows that they're under probation. But it really depends on the department and their policies. And ours is get your feet wet. And, and just get out there and yeah, learn as you... There. 
Um, it sounds like with training, you're learning as you, as you're going yes. as well. Uh, y'all, the, so the geo Trek podcast, obviously we're talking about uh, these stories about extreme weather and natural disasters not covered by the mainstream media. And let, let's relate fire now to extreme weather. So uh, obviously one of the big impacts of fire and what helps it spread is wind. Gary, how do you deal with strong winds when you're out there fighting a fire? Typically, if it's a structure fire, um, in some cases, you're always cognizant of that as the incident commander, basically the person calling the shots, um, the general of the fire ground, if that's what you want to call the person. Um, and you're paying attention to that because you always want to know, because wind, when you open a structure up, you can create more damage by having the wind actually blow the fire to burn, to unburn stuff. So just very similar with a uh, uh, you know, any kind of a fire, you want to make sure that you're taking away the fuel from it so you're not using the wind to fuel it. So it is a very important aspect of it that you're always sizing up and monitoring while you're in controlling that fire. And Gary, you were telling me over lunch, you can actually use the wind in your favor to, to really, you know, we think of wind spreading fire, but in some cases you can use that to your benefit to kind of help control where the fire moves, right? Yes, certainly. If the wind is in your favor and it's coming from, say, the unburned side, you can open up windows on that side of the structure and control the fire from going to the unburned stuff. And actually, if you open up windows on the other side, it can clear out the smoke and what we call ventilate the fire out through that burned side. So visibility and heat and stuff is a lot more tolerable for firefighters inside. We're doing this interview in coastal Texas, but I know y'all have your most of your firefighting experience in Minnesota, where we think of really extreme winter weather, extreme cold. Kelly, you were telling me about a fire that they fought that was on national news where the temperatures were colder than 30 degrees below zero. Um, that's exceptionally cold. What is it like to fight fires in such extreme cold? Um, it's very problematic. Um, one of the things we talked about that fire, again, wind played a huge factor. Wind coming off of Lake Minnetonka, it was very, very cold. Um, and you wanted to actually be in the fire because that kept you thawed out. And when you walked outside, you froze in the way that you walked out. So at one point I was like, I've got to walk out so my hands will, my gloves will freeze a certain way. Because I have to handle hose. And I remember trying to get up into one of the trucks and having to break the ice off my knees so I could walk up the steps. And one of the owners around that house, uh, one of the owner's neighbors, opened up their garage. And everybody, everybody brought us hair dryers so we could thaw out our masks for our fire gear. So it was that cold. And it was so cold that it was creating a lot of steam. So you couldn't see if you were inside or out. It was, um, you know... There was a lot of challenges. Our bells on our SCBAs were freezing. Our masks were freezing. The hose, if you shut the hose down, it froze. So you're dealing with that constant battle of things freezing up and the people at the pump just being covered with ice. And it was, it's... It's instant freeze. It's hard to explain to people. It sounds like it's way more than just being cold. Your gear is freezing up. The equipment's freezing up. You mentioned visibility. There's steam. The mask is icing. So it's, it's really more than just you're cold out there while you're fighting the fire. Correct. It's not a frostbite thing. It's a functioning thing. And everybody, because on a fire ground, everybody has different responsibilities. So your engineer that's pumping the fire is dealing with their own problems because it's so cold. Your firefighters are dealing with 
problems because they're cold and their gears freezing. Your incident commander has to look over the whole situation and say, how do I manage this? And we were, you know, people were bringing us hot chocolate and coffee just to keep us warm. And we were on that fire scene from 4 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m. the next day. And Gary likes to tell the story about when we went to retrieve the hose from that fire. What happened then? Well, obviously, when you shut lines down, if you don't leave the nozzles cracked, as you all have found out here when you get your freezes lately, if you're not flowing a little bit of water, they'll, they'll freeze solid. Um, we were lucky enough, this house was right on the shore of the lake, so you have these 50-foot sections of hose that are frozen basically straight. Um, we went up with snowmobiles and actually dragged the hoses across the lake to our fire station so we could try and get them inside somewhere and thaw them back out. So. Uh, so so whole hose is freezing up. And you mentioned before, too, like some of these fire hydrants will actually be dry, right? Where they're connected maybe by piping to the main line, but there'll be valves to keep them dry. Because if you have water in that hydrant, it's going to uh, basically make it explode or, or make it malfunction, right? Correct. Our hydrants up north, they're, they're basically a dry stem hydrant. So they're tapping off your water line out in the road, but that actual stem of the fire hydrant has no water in it like hollywood likes to show you when cars run into them that that doesn't happen up north um and so literally that when you open the valve at the top that's what lets the water come up so we have to be very cognizant of that when we shut them down to, to make sure that the hydrant has drained out properly and everything so they don't freeze while we're on the topic of cold, so I'm, I'm thinking of times that I've seen in the media or in real life, firefighters just throwing all this water on, on certain fires. Well, what do you do when it's 20 degrees below zero? The ice buildup on that building and maybe adjacent buildings has to be tremendous. What are some things to think about with that, with ice buildup on the buildings and also, say, uh, water running out in the streets and, and that freezing as well? So um, you have to think about the weight of the ice. And once a structure's on fire, it's compromised. You know, if there's any part of it missing, you've got that weight load on it. So you really got to be aware of that. And if you even want firefighters inside anymore, then everything becomes an ice rink. And usually it's from the front door all the way down the street is one big, you know, skating. You can skate, slide, slip, slide. Um, the road becomes just glare ice. So we have a good relationship with our public works and they'll come out and they'll start salting and sanding things so we can walk around because Firefighters end up on their bottoms quite a bit. And when you have your air pack on, you know, you can take a pretty good fall. Yeah, for sure. No, that makes sense. And Kelly, you mentioned to me as well, getting some ice coating on an adjacent house might actually protect it in some cases. So we had another really, really cold fire. Um, and this house was also on the lake, on Lake Minnetonka. And the houses were very close to each other. And we were able to use that to our benefit because we just coated the house next door with a nice sheet of ice, which protected that from any ambers, from anything. And that, that house was, I don't even think it was five feet away from the other house. And we protected it by just coating it with ice. Well, I see. So that was an intentional coating. Let's get a layer of ice there and it'll be protected from these embers. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, your hair freezes. Your, you know, if you're a gentleman, your beard, your mustache, every, you know, everything that has any water freezes. So you're constantly dealing like this ice coating on your mask. You know, you're just fighting with it constantly. And then once you thaw out, if you allow yourself to thaw out, you get, you know, your socks are soaked. Everything's just wet. No matter how protective our gear is, there's always that element. 
Sounds like y'all have uh, quite a bit of experience dealing with these conditions. It seems like it's very easy for you to recall these memories of fighting fires in extreme cold. Uh, let's talk about building materials. So obviously different materials burn differently. I mean, what should people think about as far as materials that may be, you know, good to use in building construction or, or bad to use? I mean, what do you think when, if let's say a friend of yours was building a house and they said, what should we think about in regards to fire safety? Uh, what would you tell them, Gary? Kelly's probably a better person for this, but um, I mean, literally, the probably in today's modern construction, the best thing a person can do is literally sprinkle their house um, because uh, local building codes and all that now have dictated between that and lumber yards what we're going to use, and we can't really use legacy materials anymore, i.e. rafters and all that sort of stuff. We're using TGIs and trusses, which are very prone to failure and fire, so the best thing you can do is try to sprinkle your house and meet, you know, remedy the problem before it gets too great. Kelly, you've been nodding your head like, yes, that's what I do. What, anything to add to that? Well, of course, there's always preventing the fire in the first place. Um, if you really pay attention to, you know, the top causes of um, fire, usually you will not have one. There's always, you know, the, those freak accidents and things like that. But fire sprinkler systems in residential homes it's, um, you know, in Arizona, it's the law. Uh, if you put a fire sprinkler system in your home, your family will survive a fire. And 99.9% .9 of the times that sprinkler system is going to either um, suppress that fire till firefighters get there or put it out. And people always talk about the cost, but the cost of is somebody's life. It's worth the cost. And I tell people, if you don't sprinkle it for your kids, sprinkle it for your pets. Do those sprinkler systems, are they often automated? Like if it detect smoke it'll start going off or does someone have to like pull a lever how do those usually work so fire sprinkler systems are activated by the heat from the fire that's why they're up high and the easiest way to explain a um, modern sprinkler system is if you go into a home or even a commercial building you're going to look and you're going to see a little tube of glass that's you know usually red but it can be green or different colors that just that's indicating the temperature at which it can be activated um, when there's a fire, all the heat and the hot black icky smoke go up to the ceiling. It gets to 155 degrees, let's say in a residential home. That breaks that little piece of glass, which acts like a cork, and behind it is the, the water. So, again, Hollywood not doing us any favors. Um, only one sprinkler head goes off or, or two. Whatever's affected by the heat, they don't all go up. So it's quite isolated. It's not yeah. like your whole house is going to get no, doused by water. That's Hollywood. That's Hollywood. <laughs> that only happens in Hollywood or um, structures that have a lot of hazardous materials might have a deluge system where all of them go off and they just have to pour a lot of water because of what's in that building. But sprinkler systems are built to accommodate what is in that structure that's building. And um, fire sprinklers in residential homes are just to preserve life. They're only put in there. So like a, a typical living room might have two in it. A bedroom might have one. There's not a lot of sprinkler heads in a residential home because we're just trying to prevent flashover and make sure the people that can get that can get out. And the fact that it isolates, it brings up something we were talking about at lunch. You want to put out that fire, but you also want to think about not causing unnecessary damage to the home. Or Gary, you mentioned restaurants and things like that, right? Like you can you can try to put out this fire, but there are certain approaches you could take that would really have harmful impacts to the long term, the longevity of the restaurant, right? That's correct. I mean, you want to make sure that you keep always thinking about the business or what's in there. 
you know, computers and that sort of stuff. Everything's all based on kind of what's in there and what that mode of extinguishment is going to be. And even, even at our level as firefighters, we have to be cognizant of that. There are certain things when we go into structures that we want to, we don't always want to throw water at something that might not be their best solution. You know, you're, you're looking at kind of what's causing the fire, where, where is it at, where is it located? Um, fire, there's basically three elements of fire. You can take away any one of those and we can resolve the problem. Um, one is through water, which removes the heat, which is kind of the ignition point thing. The other is removing oxygen, which we can use chemical agents such as halon or those to remove those. The third being actually removing the fuel, which is often used in wildland fires and that sort of stuff where you do these big clear cuts and that thing that removed the fuel. So we're just kind of looking at the situation and doing what's best for the best outcome is kind of what you're doing. And that's the incident commander's job. So really, you explained to me before, there's the ignition, there's the oxygen, there's the fuels. And if you remove any one of those three, you, you pretty much uh, suppress or put out the fire in general. Is that a good way to think of it? That's that's correct. I mean, sometimes it can be a little more complicated than that. But in, in reality, that's it. Um, fire is a living creature. It is a product of Mother Nature. So you can always have little instances where that might not work. But again, there are always ways that we can overcome it. And that that's why as... And then commander, you're always reviewing your tactics and always, you know, they always say about every five minutes, you, if you're not changing something, you're probably doing something wrong. So, well, because fire is so dynamic, right? It's constantly changing and you just, it seems like you have to keep processing the latest information coming in. Correct. That's, you know, out in the field. I mean, in our, in residentials, you know, we have in, interior commanders, you have people that are kind of sector commanders, which typically are outside. They're giving you Smoke is a great indicator as to how the fire is going. Smoke colors. We learn all kinds of different things about colors of smoke and what that means for what's going on with your extinguishment and that sort of thing. So there's all kind of, like I said, there's a lot of science behind it. It's uh, not just a bunch of guys running around spraying water all over everything. <laughs> yeah, and I know y'all are both not only understanding the science, but also communicating it to people and doing a lot of education. Kelly, you were saying you do a lot of education with children. Like, what are some of the main things you'll tell them when you go to a school? So, um, so I'm a, the fire marshal for the Excelsior Fire District, and one of the things I'm in charge of is public education. And it's um, really, when, you, when you're a public educator in the fire service, you've got to take what you know scientifically, and you've got to make sure the people that you're teaching understand it, no matter what age they are. So we talk a lot about, so fire curriculum's the same as reading, arithmetic, history, anything. You start with the foundation in preschool, and you build up as they get older. So there are certain things that we teach, preschoolers, certain things we teach, fourth graders, that kind of thing. And you basically talk about prevention, how, you know, how to prevent the fire in the first place. Then we talk about how you react to it. And then we talk about how you survive it. So there's three things we teach them at the Excelsior Fire District is prevent it in the first place, learn how to react to it, and survive it. So, you know, one of the things is you need a smoke alarm because if you're going to survive a fire, your smoke alarm has to give you that early, you know, that early notice that there's a fire in the house. And that's why they're up on the ceiling because they smell the smoke first. And that's how I talk to the kids. They smell the smoke and they don't actually smell it, but you've got to bring it down to their level. Yeah, this con Well, I like how you're going through those different parts and especially focusing on prevention. If you can prevent the fire in the first place, then you, you don't even have to worry about fighting it. Yes. And so the number one cause of home fires 
generally cost most of the United States is unattended cooking. People are cooking on the stovetop and they're walking away from it or they're coming in there finding that fire and they're using water to put out a grease fire which causes an explosion and either injures or, or kills them and then just your kitchen bursts into flames because you've just basically you know, done that chemical reaction. Um, it interchanges every year. Space heaters are a big one. We'll call it heating, but the biggest one in heating is space heaters. And then open flame, and the huge one is still that candles, unattended candles. So those are the three big ones. But you can go into southern states, and sometimes it is the space heaters are, are you know, number one. So there's, inter, you know, interchanging all the time. And still, um, careless smoking is still generally the top fatal fire. You mentioned a lot of people will have fires that start in the kitchen and they might try to put it out with water, but it's a grease fire. How should people approach that besides putting water in it? They should slide a lid or something on top of the pan. So um, our knee-jerk reaction is to throw water. We've been taught our whole life, put, you know, put um, water on fire. I tell people, you got to take a breath, got to reset your brain, and then you've got to slide something over that pan and very slowly slide it over. Don't pounce on it. Take the lid, pizza pan. Um, so really suffocate it. Yeah, suffocate it. And then I tell people, don't peek. Just leave it on there. Turn off the heat. And I said, you're either going to order you know, order in or go out because your kitchen's going to smell. And you've got to leave that on that stovetop till the next meal. So it can, re, you know, it can, you introduce oxygen and it might be pretty hot for a long time. So really good suggestions there. I I like how, you know, you're looking at that statistically, what's the number one cause and then sharing some ways that people can deal with that if, if they find themselves in that situation. Well, y'all, we've been talking a lot about domestic fires, about fires in cities. Let's talk a little bit about wildfires. So we've seen a lot of them on the news, whether it's Colorado. I know this, this summer we had uh, huge wildfires in Canada that was putting a lot of smoke down to the U.S. Um, Gary, what are the... What's the difference really between the wildfires and, and fires in a, in a city or in the suburbs? Well, um, the big one in the wildfires is that keyword wild. Um, city fires can do the same thing um, through the conflagration process where, you know, one structure starts and you can move down the line, which is kind of what happens in wildland fires, too. Um, the big thing with wildland fires and even as we kind of saw in Maui, Fires of that intensity can create their own weather systems and thus enhancing themselves and keeping themselves alive. Going back to that whole topic of this is Mother Nature. It's a living thing. It's doing what it can until somebody intervenes in it. Um, the big thing with wildland fires is get out of the way. It's going, it's going to get everything. Um, the people that are out there trying to put it out for you are very specially trained, have very special equipment, and know precisely what they're doing and what's going on. As the public, your garden hose is going to do you no good. Uh, we we are taught in wildland firefighting, like I say, there, there's a lot of tactics going on. The people that are around that are doing it are well trained. Pre- well-trained, and they're typically in teams that are all interacting in concert together. Um, You'd brought up during lunch about Minnesotans actually going up to help the firefighters in Canada. Um, Those are through what we call mutual aid packs or shared services agreements. Um, They happen all the way down from the local level where an Excelsior will actually share with like Minnetonka or some of our other surrounding departments bringing people in. goes to state levels such as happens for us up north, a lot of times between us and like North Dakota, when the Red River Valley floods and stuff, we will be transferring back and forth into the Dakotas for helping 
people during floods and stuff like that. And it also obviously happens at a national level. Um, in the wildland service, a lot of times that is done through the DNR and all that, which is when I was a wildland firefighter, you know, there were many times I was asked to go to Colorado to fight fires and, and that sort of stuff. So it's, it's all on, on that basis in a shared service where they're all, you're all working together. You're all trained. Everybody's trained to a level. So yeah. And that level is a national level. So it's not like you're going to get a bunch of guys in there, people in that do not understand what's going on. We're all trained to that. You know, as I say, the DNR has a standard and you need to meet that. So you mentioned that wildland fires uh, can create their own weather. They also can move unbelievably fast, right? I mean, they can move at very quick speed that sometimes people can outrun them, right? Correct. Um, and a lot of that, again, is through creating their own weather systems and that sort of thing. Um, you know, if some of the research and data that's coming back from the stuff in Maui is the incredible heat that these things are creating, you know, temperatures of 2000 degree, I mean, incinerating bodies to the point of non-recognition and that sort of stuff. And they're able to do that. Um, just because a tree is green doesn't mean it can't burn. Sap is a fuel and especially up North for us up North with the pine trees and all that, that are very sappy. That is actually can be very explosive. So it might not burn down to the ground. It might just burn 20 feet up in the air across the treetops and just scream across the ground that way. And everybody on the ground is safe. It's just, it's above your head. So these are all things that you kind of got to watch for. And again, wind and all of that is, you know, your expertise plays a lot into that as to what's going on. High wind situations are in a forest fire are better if you're on the ground because the wind is going to keep it up at the treetops where if you're in a wildland fire, so you're in the prairie, that's not so good because now it's going to brush across plus drying out the surfaces ahead of the fire because it's also taking that heat now and it's moving it in front. So it's hyper drying everything in front of it and making great fuel for that thing to move across. So well, you mentioned thinking about fuel too. So let's say we were talking about wildland fires, but even you get to some of our suburbs are very wooded. There might be a lot of, you, you get um, like larger single family residential properties where there's a lot of grass and a lot of trees. I've heard firefighters before talk about making a defensible space kind of around your house. Is that, what should people think about Kelly with that as re, in regards to how they set up their, their home and their property, especially if they're in a dry climate or very fire prone. So most States have some firewise program, like the Minnesota DNR department of natural resources has a firewise where you prepare your cabin. So if a wildland fire comes through, you, you don't like stack the logs for your fireplace up against the house. Um, you keep your space green space and you don't put pine trees right up against your house. You basically try to make all the combustibles away from the house so there's nothing to fuel that fire. You make sure that you have a non-combustible roof that's not going to catch on fire and you don't leave leaves and branches collect on your roof or in your gutters. So you're trying to make it so it's you know somewhat fire resistive. And there have been stories about people that have done that and all the cabins around them have burned down and their cabin's fine. So there is some, you know, people should really go to their local forest industry and figure out how to make their cabin or their second home or wherever fire-wise. Well, what I like about that is those are things people can actually do, right? You can't stop the fire from coming over the hill. But like you said, if you clean the, roofs, or the leaves out of your gutter or you don't have the firewood stacked against your house, you're, you're doing what you can do, right, to prevent it from getting your house. I mean, it's as simple as raking sometimes. 
you know, the pine needles collect on the ground and the leaves rake, clear it out. So they're, the fire at least can't, you know, it'll go around the house because it's all green. So you're kind of thinking about where are the fuels and yeah, giving yourself a defensible space around your house, which is really interesting. Well, we, we know that fire is really more common in a dry climate, windy places, but also sometimes we see when there are big floods, we'll see a house on fire. Gary, you mentioned to me one of the problems with that can be, it can be hard for emergency services to get to that fire to fight it if there's a fire that breaks out in a flood zone. Yeah, that's very true. Um, in a lot of cases, you know, um, big things I think everybody comes to mind is Katrina in Louisiana and a lot of these structures burning. And if they couldn't get the National Guard or somebody to help get them out to these structures, they were going to go to the ground because a fire truck is not going to get there. The other thing that happens is the domestic water supplies that we rely on for our water, most of the time by the time these events happen, are not a functional thing anymore. So then you're kind of into these tanker operations because that water that might necessarily be flooded around there might not be real conducive to fighting fire, depending on what contaminants and that sort of stuff are in it. Um, some of the latest things that we're also seeing now is with a lot of the EV lithium battery cars and that sort of thing. If that water happens to be salt water, that creates another chemical reaction that can create another huge problem that we honestly in the fire service haven't quite been able to come up with the best solution yet. Um, so there, there's always challenges with that. Um, I know one of the big things we talked about is how many of those could be potentially set by, shall we say, the occupant for no better purpose than to say a financial gain, which, as we all know, goes into the law enforcement department of it. And then how we deduce that and determine that is certainly that's obviously way up in Kelly's expertise and wheelhouse, but it's all things that I tell you, even from the basic firefighter level, we have all learned to see signs and of what's going on there and be very aware of wearful of that. And basically those investigations, just like a police officer arriving at your house, they're always taking mental notes of what's going on. Firefighters were all taught the exact same thing. So it's, don't think just because, well, the fire investigator didn't show up, there's no report on this because everybody's got, you know, their ideas and it all gets reported. It's all, there's actually a national reporting system that all this goes into to collect the data and they're pretty elaborate reports that come out. So they're, they're pretty thorough. Gary, I'm glad you mentioned that. I spent a lot of time in flood zones and, and people will say, well, my uncle always jokes around, you know, if a, he doesn't have flood insurance, but if a flood ever came, he'd just light his house on fire, you know, and it, and obviously none of our GeoTrek listeners would do that. You're all disaster savvy. You, you know better than that, but you might be at that family barbecue where your, your uncle that doesn't have discretion says, yeah, I would just light my house on fire and no one would know then because I don't have flood insurance, I would still get a payout and uh, I'd be ahead of the game. Um, Kelly, we know it's not a good idea, right? Because because there's fire science and even people that specialize in forensics can put these pieces and clues back together to give them a really good idea when they when they put when they connect the the dots of what caused this fire and how it spread, right? So, um, yes, just like police detectives have to go to special school to investigate crimes, firefighters or fire investigators go to schools so we can investigate fires because one of the things we have to figure out at a fire is where it started and how it started. And if you can figure out the where, then you usually can figure out you know, the how. And we can look at a burned out building and we can see clues. And not the average person could never see those clues, but we can see the clues. And 
the fire patterns, the way things were burned, the way things melt, the way, even the way the a light bulb melts can point us to where the fire started. And there's a lot of investigation things. And when you have a fire, you might have five or six different forensic people on. One person's just doing the, the electrical piece. Another person's documenting with photos. Another person's looking at the patterns. Another person's documenting what the exterior looked like. Um, one of the things our firefighters at the Excelsior Fire District have to do is they have to do a first-in report after every fire. And they, it's like 20 questions. What did you see? What did you hear? Who was where? You know, that kind of thing. Answering like, what color was the smoke when you arrived? Did that fire act differently? Did this person do, you know, so they're all like investigators on their own levels, but they're still giving us clues. And one of the reasons you might see an investigator on the reds going to a fire is the sooner we can see that fire and where it is and what it's doing, that helps us with clues. And one of the things I do as a fire investigator is when there's a fire, our fire department's really good at going, you know, Kelly, um, the homeowner's over there or the, the tenant's over there. And I go interview them right away. They don't know why, why I'm asking them these questions, but I take their questions. I walk into that structure and say, whatever they told me needs to match. And if it matches, great. If it doesn't match, then we have a, an issue. And then I'm calling the state fire marshal's office to help me come and investigate. Because in Minnesota, if it's a suspected arson, the state fire marshal's office gets involved. And one thing about investigation, it's not like a one person thing. It's a team, which is nice because one person can just be taking pictures and they've got to document every photo and, you know, write what everyone is. So it can be a huge undertaking. Well, it seems like there's visual evidence and then there's chemical evidence. And then, like you said, there's even a social science side to it of who, who is the homeowner who was here when this was set, right? So there's a lot of different layers of this coming together. And it seems like it takes a team to kind of uncode what most likely happened. Yes. Um, you know, we had a, a fire in a very large home a couple years ago and um, I pulled up and the firefighters like, you know, the kid that started the fires over there, but I went and talked to the kid and it was actually a very complicated what happened. And I, this kid survived this fire, which was incredible, but everything he told me right down to the way the smoke was moving, I could go into his bedroom and I could see everything and that he was telling me the truth. And it was very complicated and I, the kid survived and it was amazing. Um, but typical bedroom fire, the Flames never left the bedroom, but that heat and that smoke and that toxic smoke all moves significantly ahead of the fire. And um, every every door in the home was open except for one. So every every room was affected. But right around the corner from his bedroom was his mom's doll collection in a room with white carpet. The door was closed. You open the door, could barely even smell the smoke and it was pristine. So, I mean, so every, I had to look at every room to make sure what he told me matched and it did. So it sounds like for firefighters, it's incredibly important that you're very observant in the moment when you're actually showing up and starting to fight it, looking at the smoke patterns or the color of the smoke, anything like that. But then also afterwards you're piecing together. So it sounds like it's almost this detective story that you're trying to piece together in the, in the moments or even days after the fire. Well, and as a firefighter, you have to know the basics too. You have to tell, is this, this room going to flash over it? You know, you've got to be able to read the room just tactically to make sure that you stay safe and you're fighting the fire, um, you know, effectively, like Gary was talking about, we're, we're always looking. And one of the things that a lot of people get frustrated is they'll say the, the fire department showed up 
in a truck and the guy got out and he just walked around the house and they're thinking we're going to pull not pull hose and everything. Well, that person's walking around and that person is looking at where's the fire? Where's the living room? Because the living room usually has a bigger window. Where's the bathroom? That's usually got the smaller window. You know, where's the bedrooms? Is it a flat roof? Is it a pitched roof? They're walking around and they're getting all this data so they can tell the crews coming in. I think the fire is in the back. We're going to enter in the back and we're going to fight the fire this way. And we got, you know, this room here and that room and people were reported that they're trapped. Well, at three o'clock in the morning, they're probably in their bedroom. So we're looking at all this stuff. We're looking to see, are there toys in the yard? You know, do they have kids? We're just looking, we're taking in a lot of data and we're processing it really quickly. So not only are we getting it from the investigation, but we're getting it so we can fight the fire and possibly save lives if somebody's inside. So experience has probably taught you all that it, it pays to take a moment and just assess the situation instead of rushing without knowledge, right? Um, just to take that moment, gather information and have a more strategic approach. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Um, it's, you know the difference between life or death. Now, we were talking earlier about construction materials and building a house that's more fire safe. Well, again, legacy, we're not using timbers and anymore to um, build our homes. We're using lightweight construction. And now what we're telling people is back when I grew up, I would tell people if there was a fire in my house where I grew up because it was, you know, built a long time ago, very sturdy nails, rafters, that kind of thing. You could pack a lunch, you know, talk to your family, grab the dog, blah, blah. You had 15 minutes to walk out because everything was natural. Well, now everything in our homes is somehow related petroleum. If people start digging, they're going to be like, wow, we do use petroleum in a lot of things. So our houses, the, the, the fire moves faster. It's more toxic. So we're telling people, you got to be out in under three minutes. I have a question with, we, we always hear people say, just, just get out, right? Yeah. As people are getting out, does it pay for them to, to shut a few doors or anything? Is there anything they can do that would add five or 10 seconds that could maybe help the house not burn down or? Well, we don't, so you've got three minutes to get out. So we're telling people you get out and you stay out. Get out as fast as you can. And, and the big thing that fire service every, always pushes is that prevention piece. But that survival piece is practicing a plan we have these kids constantly going to school and they're doing their drills the whole school can get out and stay out and the the whole school can evacuate in three minutes people aren't practicing at home where that's where the deaths are occurring so we're telling people you've got to practice a plan you got to work out all the hitches Um, a lot of times if you have like a a kindergartner and there's a baby in the house if there's a real fire, that kindergartner is going to go try and save that baby. You want to do your drills so the kindergartner knows, nope, mom or dad's going to get the baby. I just need to get out. And we learned with Katrina, you have got to pay attention to people's animals. You can't tell, just leave it behind and get out. Nope. So you practice your plan with the animals. So I see when there's no fire yet, this is a time to sit down as a family and say, okay, here's the plan for the animals, for the baby. The time to do that is not when you have a kitchen fire. Right. And the door should be closed uh, automatically people should sleep with their doors closed and because that door can stop that hot black icky smoke from getting into that bedroom and creating a safe haven but there's a whole other piece about you know feeling the door for heat crawling low you know that whole practice piece is really working out all those things and having the family the kids asking questions like well mom what if I can't get out my door what do I do well if you're on the second floor you don't fly out of the window so how do we signal for help you know that kind of thing 
thinking through all these contingencies. Yeah. Y'all, what I love about this podcast is so practical. There are like so many ap- applicable ideas that we gave for families that, that y'all both provided, you know, that people can say, oh, these are things I can do to protect my house if a fire is coming from a wildland fire or things I can do to communicate with my family, the, the approach to take if, uh, God forbid, something actually happens in the home. Y'all, as we're wrapping up, any last take-home messages? If, if you had a moment to tell people, Gary, what, what they should think about with fire or, or just a, a take-home message you'd want to share with our audience, what would it be? Um, first are, if you're in an area that has a volunteer fire department and you want to volunteer, join. Um, it's a very, it's one of the most probably rewarding careers you will ever have in your life. Um, it is super beneficial. Um, and the other thing is, is, as Kelly alluded to earlier, and we've kind of talked about is in any moment of crisis, it is always the human nature to react, but try to train yourself to always just take a breath and think, I mean, uh, as we've talked about, with riptides or any of the other things we've talked about, I mean, your demise can happen because you didn't think, believe it or not. And a lot of times, if you just think, you'll be just fine. Yeah, I got a backstory there. I got in my first rip current, the number one killer here at the beach. About uh, right, uh, well, I I started hanging out again with y'all last week when you came down to the island, and I got in my first rip current. And everyone always told me if it happens, just take a breath tread water, smile, enjoy. And I did. I just was relaxing and it carried me out. But just like you said, Gary, sometimes panicking doesn't help. Take a breath. Um, and like Kelly was saying, assess, you know, and just um, take a deep breath and, and you'll be able to think a little clearer. Exactly. You know, just with any of it, just take it. You know, a lot of times if you're stuck in a space, if you panic, you're not going to get out of it. Where if you just slow down and breathe, you'll you know, you'll be able to back out of your confined space or whatever you're in. A lot of times it's just because we panic and we just overreact and then we wind up getting in bigger trouble than we're in already. So thanks, Gary. R- really amazing insights there. Uh, Kelly, last take home messages to share with our audience. So prevention, always start there. Um, prevent the fire in the first place. And there are so many resources for, you know, Galveston, reach out to the Galveston, you know, fire department, because usually your fire department knows the issues in your area. Like Gary talked about the reporting. One of the things I hate about fire investigation is the paperwork and the reports, but that is all gathered. And that's why I can stand here and tell you that the number one cause of, you know, fires in Minnesota is unattended cooking, then it's space heaters, then it's candles. Well, it might be different in your area. And if you don't have a fire department that's active in fire prevention, go to the NFPA. They've got tons of information for people on how to prevent a fire. Um, The big thing that the fire service is dealing with right now is lithium batteries. People think because it's in my household items, it's safe. It's not safe. You've really got to start paying attention because that's become very problematic in the fire service and we're playing catch up really great advice from both of y'all i feel more fire aware just from having this conversation i know our listeners are really going to love this because we try to really bring applied stories like here are things you can do we always say you can't stop necessarily extreme weather or natural disasters or or you know domestic disasters from happening all the time but there are things you can do to within your own space to con- control that and uh, prepare and, and like you said kelly prevention in your own home uh, can make a huge difference uh, again if there's a wildland fire coming across the mountain you may not be able to personally stop that but there are things you can do to defend your own space and protect your family gary and kelly appreciate you coming on the podcast best wishes as you head back to minnesota and look forward to seeing you here in coastal texas again soon thanks for having us hal great spending time with you hal
Wow, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrack podcast, Gary and Kelly. You both have such extensive experience and depth of knowledge related to fire safety. This type of podcast episode is my favorite because it's so applied. You've equipped our listeners with a wide range of knowledge on how to prevent fires and deal with them if they do occur. Gary, I love your challenge for people to consider volunteering with their local fire department. Your passion for fighting fires clearly came through on this episode, and I expect a few of our listeners will consider your challenge. Friends of mine who serve as first responders unanimously recount what a rewarding experience it has been. Kelly, your consistent messaging on fire prevention empowers people to take actions to keep themselves and their family safe. I also love your recommendation for families to make a plan in case of a future fire, including details like who will rescue the baby or the pets. Such proactive measures on the family level relate to emergency response plans implemented for all hazards across every geography. You know, we see these on every level of government, and we often talk about these emergency response plans, but it's amazing how many families have not sat down at the dinner table and actually talked through these details as a family unit unit as well. As with all hazards, we on the GeoTrek podcast hope that you, our listeners, will never experience a direct impact from a fire. But if you do, the education from this episode will help you survive a future fire much better. Special thanks to our faithful listeners who support this podcast. Please share this content with someone that you think will help or, or someone that you think the content's really relevant with. A big thank you as well to our marketing and development team with GeoTrek. They are Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Jeremiah Long, Amy Wilkins, and Courtney Booker. I'm Dr. Hal. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.